0: Hello and welcome to The Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark.
1: And I'm Rochelle Moulton.
0: And today we're going to talk about selling confidence. Hmm. Yes. So the jumping off point for this episode was the very end of a previous episode where you mentioned uh, toward the end of the show that you had, you had sort of come to realize in retrospect that what you sold when you were in the big consulting world was confidence. So could you kind of not retell that story, but kind of like re-up that thought process and we can kind of go from there to set the context?
1: Yeah, except that I think what I said was that it's this business I'm doing now. I realized just a few years ago, really, I hadn't thought about it that way, that what I was selling was confidence. So with what I do, which is basically branding and positioning strategy for consultants and big thinkers, they can do that for themselves you don't have to hire me or someone like me, if there's anyone like me. Um, You don't have to do that. (laughs) I couldn't resist. You don't have to do that because you can do this for yourself. And so what I realized was that the people who bought me and my services for this, were doing it because they were really buying confidence. They wanted to know that they were going to get something that they could trust was gonna work, and in this case, that it would be faster. But it was really all about confidence.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, right now I'm going through a new session of the pricing seminar, and one of the things we're doing is putting together like a thought piece, a little lead magnet thing. It's like one or two pages long, uh, probably a PDF, or someone takes a a little bit of intellectual property that they have and they package it up in a way that's really easy for people to share with each other. And it's very common for someone to respond to me that, why would I do this? I mean, anybody could just Google for this stuff. It's not like unique IP per se, but it'd be something like um, a checklist for doing user interviews, for example. And they're like, you know, you can just Google this, or it's there are entire books about this. Why would anybody bother with this? And the and the reason that that thought occurs to them is because they're not imagining not the end game, but like, you know, in six months or so, they're not going to care, you know, the people who download this or read it or share it aren't going to care that it's available on the internet. Like everything's available on the internet. Everything <laughs> you and I are talking about available, already been available yeah. on the internet. And some of the, some of the concepts I talk about, some of the sales concepts I talk about, I've found in books from the 50s. Like I'll just I'll read this old book and I'm like, uh, okay, I guess sales, we've been talking about the same things for, for 80 years It's pretty rare for something new under the sun to crop up at this point. The difference is, and why someone would care and why it's not a waste of time, is because uh, you're building this, you could say a brand around yourself as, say, a thought leader or you're building trust with readers that, okay, maybe this is bog standard advice about running customer interviews, let's say, but you've got some worldview or you've got some take on it or you've got this communication style or you've got something that clicks with another human and that sets you apart like you joked no one's exactly like anybody else so there's something about you that clicks with them and it gives them this confidence that that it'll work (laughs) you know like you're a google search away from probably any piece of information certainly related to building a you know an authority business but why do you listen to us? I don't know, but you do. So it's bigger than just the transaction. It's bigger than just the piece of information that's being transferred from one party to the other. It's it's this trust. So I, I'm curious, do you feel like those two things are kind of uh, sides of the same coin, like confidence and trust? I mean, they have to trust you for to get the confidence, right?
1: The confidence. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess they are. I mean, I hadn't exactly thought about it that way, but I, I, think, I think it is. And in, in fact, I think it was Seth Godin when he was on the show talked about authority is
0: trust. Yeah. Charlie Green too, obviously.
1: Yeah. 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 He's the master of trust. But I think confidence and trust, you can trust someone without being confident that they can deliver for you. But I don't think you could be confident without trusting them. I said that without thinking too much. I think that I think that's that makes sense to me. So yeah, because you could say, well, Jonathan Stark is trustworthy, but I'm not confident that he could do financial math for my website yeah, or something, yeah, exactly. right? Yep. Right? Yeah. If it's in your bailiwick, then that trust can can lead to confidence, right. right?
0: Yeah. It's like I trust my dad, but I don't want his movie recommendations, let's say.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: That's a great example because because dear listener, you definitely don't want me doing your financial <laughs> your accounting, <laughs> not my not my strong suit. You actually brought up an interesting point because I've had people come to me and I know this has happened to you too, where they, they're sort of interested in maybe working together and they'll be like, I'm talking to a couple of people, and you know, and I always know who they are because it's like a small mm-hmm. small and, world. Right. It's a small world. And it's not that they don't trust me. And or maybe they don't trust the other person, but their confidence level is different. But it's mostly around, it's not that the information is going to be different, it's mostly around who's going to be a better fit. I feel like there's probably some overlap in the Venn diagram of trust and confidence, but there is a difference. That's what I was, I was kind of hoping to yeah. get there. Yeah.
1: yeah, and plus I think there are some people, and I, I don't think of them as tire kickers, there are some people they just have to talk to. A certain number of people that can't just talk to one even if they've been listening to you or reading your stuff They still have to talk to somebody else. There's a lot of people that that do that I think and that's I think that's different But at the end of the day, I think you're right It's it's someone that they can trust Or feel that they can trust and that they have confidence can do whatever the the job is that needs to be done
0: Right. The outcome is feasible so one of the things that I say to people is like in my marketing materials is like look you can get every every thought that comes out of my brain you can get for free on my mailing list like I, i'm putting out so much stuff it's not like i've segmented off certain things that i'm not going to talk about but that's going to be a big research project for you and a lot of reading so you can do that and it's from a financial standpoint it's inexpensive but from a time standpoint it's extremely expensive or you can if you have confidence that this is the direction you want to go cuz oh that's interesting. Oh let's go there in a second. If you want to accelerate then you can spend more money and get back a lot of that time. So you don't have to spend as much time, but you do have to you can kind of like swap those two out. But now here's here's the other thing that that just occurred to me. I'll get some people who recognize that in a coaching arrangement or a training arrangement or like a workshop or that kind of thing that it's not just i'm not plugging a a usb cord into the back of their neck and like now they know kung fu it's like they are involved in the process and sometimes they don't have confidence in themselves that they'll follow through which is i did not even think of that before we started talking but that's the confidence that you could be giving especially in this kind of a Authority space could very much be like in themselves on top of it. So perhaps that's something that gets built up over time, and it might be a slippery slope to start talking about that. And get you know, it might be a little too self-helpy for us. But um, <laughs> i I think it's I think it's true though because you know if we loop back to like the information that I'm that I tell people is a lot of it's been around for eighty years. They could just go back to Zig Ziglar or Harry Brown or whoever and just read those books. But knowing that I have kind of a drill sergeant style is like, Oh, that I believe that working with a dr- that type of person, that type of a coach gives them the confidence that they will follow through. You know what I mean?
1: Right. Right. I have an intake process where One of the things that that I'm weighing for someone who wants to work one-to-one is strategy where basically I do the strategy, or is coaching a better option? And it isn't even a money decision a lot of times because if they don't get it quickly enough in coaching, the coaching could cost them more. So I always go through this exercise, and it's really interesting because... If I believe that someone can't get there with coaching, but they want coaching, I will say no, because I don't feel like I can get them there. And it's like taking their money under false pretenses. They're going to be unhappy. So I just say no. Plus Um, it's torture. Oh, yeah. It's horrible. But I'm thinking of a conversation I had maybe a month ago with someone, and I felt like that person could go either way, either one could work. So I said, so, so what, how do you like to work? And she said, oh, I have to work collaboratively. And she immediately gravitated to the coaching. As long as I was comfortable that, that I could produce the right result, meaning what's going to work for her objectives, I was okay either way. But you go through that process. And so, you know, I'm putting a judgment, which might not be correct, right? I'm putting a judgment on my ability to get them someplace. And I think, I think our clients do that too. Our clients say, oh, what I really want is a coach. And that person doesn't want to do that for me. So no.
0: Yes, I agree with that. But I thought you were going to say something a little different, which is that now that you mention it, I use the word confidence all the time when I'm talking about the why conversation, so in a sales, because you're describing a sales scenario where, where there's you know a possible sale that's going to happen and someone seems pretty serious about it. And the thing that I want, whether it's software consulting or coaching, business coaching, is that in the meeting, the interview, I want to develop confidence. I want them to convince me. I want to I be able to say, I am highly confident that I can deliver the results that you're looking for or help you get to the transformation that you're looking to, to have. Or I'm not going to take their money, just like you said before. But it's, you're never 100% sure. You're just, it's like a judgment call. You're like, over time, you've seen red flags or you've seen positive markers, and you're like, oh, this person is like, this person's like a Ferrari in the garage. We just need to open the door. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love those.
0: Yeah. Sometimes you see that. Other times they have trick you, and you, this seems like a perfect fit. And then, they weren't enrolled in the process. But over time, you get better at it. But it's still imperfect. You're trying to to gain some kind of confidence in an early stage with incomplete information to make a relatively important decision. It's not the end of the world if it goes wrong, but it's a relatively important decision. You want it to go right. It's also happening on the other side where they're making a judgment call about whether or not they're confident that you can deliver the transformation or help them transform in the way that they're looking to be transformed. And again, this was I wasn't thinking about this before we jumped on the call, but it's the two parties at that point are trying to decide if they're both like both of them are making the confidence decision. Yeah. It's, it, that's very interesting. and it's or, not, at least, I,
1: or at least we should be. And I, I use true. that word should very intentionally because it's part of what happens. You know, when you're first starting, especially in consulting, you're going to take clients that you realize pretty quickly would have been a no. A no would have been a better answer. It <laughs> is going to happen.
0: Red yeah. flag. Shroom. Another red yeah. flag. <laughs> oh, look at those red flags going by.
1: Don't beat yourself up about it because everybody's done it. We've all been there. It happens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
0: <laughs> but it would be great to get to the point where you're not doing that. And so, yeah, so yeah. I feel like not to beat a dead horse with the trust thing, but I feel like trust is a precondition there. But the confidence thing is like, I don't think you could have confidence in someone that you don't trust. Maybe, well, maybe you could, I can imagine a criminal activity that I didn't trust the person, but I did have confidence that things were going to get done. I, I think these two words are less related than I thought.
1: Well, maybe I, I think part of it depends on how you define confidence, because I'm thinking you could look at some big expert in whatever field you're considering and you go, I'm confident that person could get me what I want, but you don't trust them. I mean, I could see that. I mean, it's, it would be hard for you and I because our work is so personal, People share a lot of stuff with us. And frankly, you're not going to share things or be vulnerable with somebody you don't trust. Yeah. It's not going to happen.
0: Right. Yeah, that's why I'm conflating them. Because it's like in my world, they're kind of linked. They're pretty strongly linked. But yeah, you could imagine someone like, I don't even know if I trust the guy that works in my car. It doesn't matter. He can fix my car. I'm confident that he can fix my car. Like trust doesn't really... I don't know.
1: Well, it would for me. So I'd be I'd want to be confident that he knew what he was doing, but the trust part would be, is he gonna take advantage of me because I don't understand stuff about cars? Is he gonna tell me I need a new transmission when I just need a new little doohickey? Right. Yeah, there's that. So there's like it's almost like the confidence is almost about the knowledge base. And the ability to solve a problem, and it's easy when you're in consulting, that's sort of like the technical part. It's easy to just sort of assume, well, of course, you come in with a big swagger, of course, I can solve this problem. I've seen it a million times before. <laughs> but then the trust part is, do they care about me? Will they ask the right questions? Will they understand that my situation isn't exactly the same as any other one they've seen before?
0: Right. Mm-hmm. So
1: it's like confidence without arrogance. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting can of worms you opened there, Jonathan.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I sent a email. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so uh, one of the things you mentioned before the show was was big consulting and the the different kinds of motivations for a buyer inside of an organization versus you know making a, a really big purchase and how. It's pretty common that big four consulting firms would get the nod because the confidence that they're selling or the confidence that the buyer has in them is is not necessarily about the money or even the transformation, but about not getting fired or it's much more complex game going on there.
1: Yeah. If you think about it this way, people inside big corporations that are hiring consultants, they have a reputation. They have a job they have a boss. Um, Depending on the level in the organization, they might have a board. They might even have multiple, quote unquote, bosses if they have cross-functional reporting. So when they hire a consultant and things go bad, the consultant goes away. But the blame and any reputation attached to that stays squarely with the, the lead client. So it can be really simple to say well i'm going to choose one of a handful of names in whatever functional area they're in you know if you're a ceo you know you hire mckinsey or booz right uh, or or bcg even so you you make those decisions and then within that choice you decide what team is going to work for you so it's not like you just say oh get me mckinsey you look at not only the name of the firm but then you look at the team and there's there's a story I have about this. So there was a company, Fortune 500 company that I worked with a lot when I was still in my in the big firm and they had, I don't know, 9 or 10 different divisions that were so different. And I knew all those divisions because I'd done this preliminary work for this big project and then they decided not to do the project and then it was a year or two after that I'd left, I started a new firm. I had the non-compete, but the non-compete had expired with them. And so it turns out they had this same kind of a project that I'd done for them before. And so I reached out and talked to the client and said, oh, I'm so excited about this. I can't wait to, I forget how I said it, but I'd like to work with you again, something like that. And she said, "Mm, I hate to tell you this, but we're only talking to three firms And it was all the big ones, including the one I came out of. And that was my lesson in that moment. And it it didn't happen to me very often. But that one, that hurt because I knew the woman. I knew her really well. I liked her. I knew the organization. Like I could have done an amazing job for them, but we didn't get a seat at the table. So that's, I mean, that's what happens.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because they're not It's a different kind of ROI that they're looking for, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't
1: deliver what they needed. I I mean, I totally get that. And I got it in the moment, too. I just didn't like it. (laughs)
0: Right. right. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a, a purchase that's happening that is not the thing that everyone's talking about. It's this sort of subtext that's going on of career risk management for the buyer or the decision maker. So you've got a lot of experience on both sides of the fence of soloist and big firm this is kind of a classic scenario where like you've got maybe a director or a vp at a fortune 500 company and you're a soloist what kind of scenarios does it make sense or if we're talking about confidence what could you do if anything to give confidence to that person on the other side of the table who's in this kind of classic situation
1: it, to be perfectly honest, I think it is a challenge selling as a soloist into a big firm and into a big organization because if you don't have name recognition, it's tough to get a meeting. It's tough to get a phone call. It's tough to get your email answered. So, you know, the the easy answer is, you know, you have some kind of a prior relationship, which is how I got in in that particular case. It wasn't any other reason. But that, but really, it's the answer is kind of what we've been talking about on the show for two years is that you really have to be able to build your authority so that they know who you are.
0: Right. Yeah. You have to be famous.
1: Kind of. You have to be like, like Twitter famous or specific to their expertise famous, right? And so one of the ways you, you, that you do that is you get introduced by somebody else. I mean, that's the classic way is that you get a referral. And they say, gee, you know, they ask their cohort in another organization, gee, who helped you with this? Who do you like? And they gather names and they research you. or And they might just look at you on LinkedIn. They might not even look at your website. So there's there's that sort of ageless way of, of getting in. But the other way is to really, really niche, You know, an example is right now is corporate coaches. It's really hard as a corporate coach. I call it the beauty contest because typically somebody in HR or more likely OD is running this selection process. So they'll pick some firms. And in each of those firms, and they're not all big, some of them are boutique, but the boutique ones are specialized and they all have a roster of coaches. Most of them work on a contract basis. So so they have a coaching opportunity and they send a bunch of links to websites or bios or resumes and it's a beauty contest. So maybe you get chosen and maybe you don't, but it's really, really tough. And then because there are so many, that it's really easy for them to be commoditized. And so they'll say, okay, you coach get, we'll give you, I don't know, let's say twelve dollars or $15,000 for this assignment. We're going to charge the client 30 or 40, and you're going to deliver X number of meetings in this time frame." You know, they'll really scope it out. So it's really hard to break out. But if you're a coach who is specialized, so, and not just specialize as in I do leadership, but you specialize in coaching uh, leaders of teams. You specialize in software development teams. You specialize in high-tech organizations. I and mean, there's a lot of different ways you can specialize, but that's the way Though you've got to be really hyper-focused to be able to consistently get in the door at, at big firms as a soloist.
0: Yeah, it, w- it would improve your referrals too because the it'd be a smaller community of people who are probably more tightly knit. You know, if you just did like Silicon Valley founders, if you're good, assuming that you deliver results, which is a precondition, then p- your name's going to get around. People are just going to talk and it's like, it's a great way to differentiate yourself. So it's not a beauty contest. You become the only option or the obvious option. I'll add that, and this is actually could be a part of it, But the only way that I ever got into really big companies was the combination of, it might be three things, but at least two of writing a book that was well received and then speaking at conferences off the back of the book. And this is probably pretty important too. It was a very new cutting edge kind of thing. So there was no competition. The big, the big firms were two years behind me. Once a lot of that expertise in mobile, Steve Jobs pretty much invented the smartphone. I mean, like in 2007, there were Blackberries before that, but it was a different, a whole different ballpark. And when that thing came out, it was like three years before anybody really seriously was like, wait a second, this is huge. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it was probably, what was that? So, like 2010. Yeah, it was like two years. And then by 2012, there are all these companies that sprung up around it because it became relatively obvious to people who were paying attention that this was going to be big bucks and sap and and deloitte and everybody was jumping in the game with like you know mobile consulting or their own mobile turnkey product to solve all these problems that i had been solving along the way consulting people about uh building their own solutions and then you know these companies were like well okay that's the only option right now and we're a cutting edge company and want to stay cutting edge. So we'll do that. But the vast majority of companies are not cutting edge and they don't want that kind of risk. And they would much be much happier to pay SAP $5 million for a chunk of garbage that actually doesn't do anything <laughs> that they promised it would do, but uh, allows someone to say, and I'm, I'm overstating it a little, but not that much, allows someone who made the decision to tick a box and say yes you know mobile initiative check did it paid sap five million dollars did that lead to anything good maybe eventually the hard way but at that point when there's its choice between buying an mdm from from sap or listening to me running around like chicken little saying that solution is horrible and you're gonna regret it, (laughs) and instead you should pay. Like they don't want to hear that they only need to spend 100,000. They don't wanna hear that.
1: They wanna check a box.
0: They wanna check a box, and they wanna move on to the next thing. And so me running around saying, mobile is not a checkbox, it's your whole business. It's gonna be your whole business. It's not a thing to tick off a list. And not everybody wants to hear that. In fact, almost nobody wanted to hear that, so.
1: But that's also a point of view. And it's a strong point of view that could bring you, if that, that slice that agrees with you is big enough, that could bring you a whole lot of work as a, as a consultant.
0: Yeah, it worked great because I got tons of cutting edge people, uh, early adopters. And then once it got to the crossing the chasm piece and we got to the late adopters and the laggards it was there was just no chance there's no chance those people were going to so my ideal buyer the point of all of this is to say that it was a combination of having a very specific specialty which happened to be cutting edge which i think helped quite a bit and doing the book conference speaking thing i was like every month i'd fly to a conference and i'd speak and i got tons of of fortune 500 business out of that
1: it just made me think about a client that I have. That when he came out with a book, it actually had a co-author, and they had a series of books. And, and at the time, I think they were on the third one, a uh, second one, and it was really interesting because they said, "Here's how we want to do our business model. We want to speak." Uh, We want to write books and we know we're not going to make a lot of money from books, but we want it to fuel our speaking career and we'd like to do some consulting, but we don't want to do big corporate long engagements. And I wound up terming it parachute consulting. They said, we want to do parachute consulting where we swoop in, we do a little thing and then we leave. And I said, all right, that's interesting. Let's see what we can do with that. And what, what was fascinating is that there were kind of two kinds of clients. And over time, they they leaned into one, and the the main kind of client was the one that said, "Come speak to our internal conference." It was like an internal speaking engagement, and because their topic applied internally to a lot of big, well-known organizations, so they would go and they would get paid. Uh, let's see how many figures. Uh, five figures usually to speak to those. Okay. It was fine. They would come in, they would do a speech, and then somebody would refer them to do to another group inside that organization and they would do those. Then there was a second kind of organization that seemed to be interested in the parachute consulting idea, but they wanted to have a lot of meetings and they were unpaid (laughs) meetings. And these guys would have to fly around the country and pay for that and show up. And, And they did some in their local market. And then they said, we're not doing any more of these. If somebody wants to talk to us initially, it's a phone conversation. If they want us to meet with them, they have to pay us and they have to pay our travel, which was completely reasonable but what they found was they really gravitated they did wound up doing very little parachute consulting they maybe did a half a dozen assignments and doing primarily speaking and anytime someone was trying to kick the tires they just shut it down immediately
0: <laughs> yeah boom this is a, a tangent but it's funny um i had a it's the same kind of thing client that was like oh Uh, we really need to meet in person we really need to meet in person I was like okay uh, the closest airport is TF Green it's in Providence and you can fly your team up here we can meet (laughs) at my office and that well well, well, we thought you could fly down to us and I was like okay it'll be ten thousand dollars which compared to flying their entire team to me is a bargain (laughs) (laughs) right yeah that's good
1: yeah yeah, like yeah. why am I the
0: one that has to fly?
1: well it's it's funny because you know when you grow up in consulting, you, you are the one, the consultant's the one that flies and it's expected. but when like when I first started my firm and I was dealing with people, it they, it's like they they didn't understand that now this was my money, that I had to make a decision for the business of who we were gonna fly, how many people we were gonna fly. And when we were going to fly, because all of that impacted the cost. And so there were people where I said, you know what, we really can't do this. We can have a discussion on the phone. And this was before, you know, video conferencing was quite as normal as it is now. And this is what we will do if we, you know, if you decide to choose us. And so sometimes we just said no. I had to pay people because I, I only paid them when they worked. So I had to pay them to fly. So if I if they go to Cleveland for a one hour meeting, I have to pay two people for a day each, plus the travel expenses, plus the time to develop the proposal. So guess what? You know, I wasn't going to spend that money if I wasn't absolutely confident. Yeah, back to our say. theme. <laughs> <Right>. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that we had something at stake.
0: Yeah, right. That's exactly where I was going. There's a class of person that finds in person just as abhors digital communication, thinks it's really bad doesn't doesn't trust anyone, wants to meet people in person, wants to shake hands, share the air you know from a confidence standpoint how much does it matter to you in terms of developing confidence? in a client that you're potentially taking on or maybe even hiring a VA or something, someone who you're going to hire or someone you hired in the past. How much does an in-person meeting affect your confidence versus teleconferencing or, you know, maybe a phone call?
1: You mean me personally with? Yeah. Doesn't it all? I I don't need to meet somebody in person. And most of my clients I've never met in person. (laughs) Yeah, same here. There's some. And when I say clients, I mean in, in this iteration in this business, when I was in a big firm, you know, I met clients all the time. There, there really wasn't anybody I hadn't met in person. But yeah, I, I don't need to. And I, I feel like, and I think a lot of us have done this. It's not like unique to me or to you. It's that we when you spend a lot of time with people on the phone, you get pretty good at at least hearing the signs that someone's a good fit for you. Or the things that make you run for the nearest exit. At least for me, I find listening to someone on the phone or in audio, people tell you things when they can't see your face.
0: Yes. That they wouldn't
1: in person. (laughs) And it's, it's more intimate in a weird way. So for me, if someone said, well, I absolutely must meet you. I don't know that I would agree unless they said there's a, a, a big ass project on the line and I'm going to pay to fly you to wherever I am and I'm going to pay for your time. And I would say, yes, it's not like I'm opposed to it, but for, for my business model, for me to fly around meeting people would not be very efficient
0: so I feel like it comes back to kind of your ideal client or your ideal buyer type of thing. If somebody was really, I wouldn't mind flying to someone to have a meeting. The thing that would, it would be a red flag though that they care about in-person stuff and are going to want to keep doing it. So if for me, it's a much better fit to meet someone that has our same kind of personality where it's irrelevant to me, whether it's in person. I mean, I'd rather have it be over the phone just like you for the similar reasons. Uh, Plus it's way more efficient, but it's not as, you know, it's not the same as in-person, but if somebody needs that in-person experience to feel like they're getting their money's worth, they're not a good fit.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're gonna be unhappy.
0: Right, so the point I guess I'm making is that, dear listener, if you're you're thinking, oh, I'm in an industry that is populated solely by people who you wanna meet face-to-face and that's not my jam, I would push back on that a little bit and be like, that seems a little hard to believe that absolutely everybody in your target market needs to be shake hands, uh, but maybe you're in sales and, or doing coaching for salespeople and maybe that's kind of a cultural norm there. Could be. I'm sure there are some situations like that, but if you don't want to be flying around and you would rather work remotely, you know, like, you know, live the dream. <laughs> <laughs> Is that They're what we're probably, doing? <laughs> yes, that's what we're doing. Um, there are probably people out there who you just haven't met yet that would be cool with that. Who that are perfectly comfortable developing trust and confidence in you in a either asynchronous way by maybe listening to your podcast, for example, or uh, just over the phone having that kind of a meeting. Because, like you said, I mean, I have in f- four years I've had one person local, and it was completely coincidental, and we the only time we ever get together is socially. So it's completely possible for folks. Cause I, I'm going into this because we get a lot of people who are like, well, I would love to do all of this stuff you guys talk about, but there's no one near me that could afford the kind of prices that I would want to charge or whatever, and, or the market's saturated where I am, or the people who live near me are very, very much price buyers and they're cheap or whatever. And so the advice is like, okay, well, why are you just selling to your local community? And then it's like, okay, I could sell around the world, but then I'd have to get comfortable with these kind of remote access type of things. And so that's why I'm going down this whole hole is because I'm kind of pre-having the fight, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the conversation with somebody who listens to this and is like, uh. So the, the bottom line point is you can build confidence with buyers and in yourself about the client, whether or not they make a good client. Remotely, that's all I'm saying. It's like it's it's completely possible to do. I've, both of us have done it for years and years,
1: and and I did. I changed. I mean, I always did all of this in person, and I was really effective that way. And the thought of not doing it in person probably would have given me the the shivers back then. But gradually, you you try different things, and for me, I would not go back. Not in a million years. I can help more people this way. I can run a business that works in terms of a business model, a financial business model, but it's also a lifestyle that I really enjoy. And I look at um, some of the people coming into business now where they say, you know what? I'm going to travel. And so they're doing, you know, meetings in Bali. They're living in Bali for a month or two. Then they're living in Germany for a couple more months and then they're in the States. I mean, If that's, I mean, you can absolutely do that with an authority business if you set it up to really support that kind of work.
0: Yeah, right. I was just, I was having this exact uh, conversation in my coaching Slack the other day. One of the students was like, how much should I charge somebody uh, to go uh, on site in, I think it was Barcelona and he lives in in Canada. And I was like, there's no amount of money that you could pay me to make me fly to Europe for a meeting. There's just not, it's not happening. Oh, I'd because, go. <laughs> I'd no, go in our beat. <laughs> no, I'm over it. You know, not, I mean, maybe when my kids are older, but it's just too much, too much stress on the mm-hmm. family. It's not, mm-hmm. not happening. There's no million dollars. No, I'm not doing it. So I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I, there's no amount of money. In, Cause he was like, should I charge just the expenses of the flight in the hotel? I feel like I should charge 10 grand, but obviously the flight and hotel aren't going to be that much. Like what's the most of the people that who chimed in are anti-travelers because I've traveled plenty. It's out of my system at least for the time being. I've traveled a lot, so it's out of my system. And and that was also true for other folks in the room. We we're all kind of like ten grand minimum, maybe twenty grand. You're going to be out of pocket for a week. And then he's like, "I love traveling, and you know it's no big deal. Like it's it's not a it's not a strain on his relationships or anything." So we were like, and "The point being that you could do either one." Not that this is about remote or in person or or travel, not the episode, but if you know which one you prefer, and anyone listening to this is probably having a visceral reaction, pro <laughs> or con traveling, just just pick the one that you prefer, and it. it I promise you, it's not going to significantly affect your ability to build confidence in potential clients or their ability to build, co- you know, be confident in in you. It's just a question of if you're going to do it remotely. It's a question of understanding the tools, and and like that doesn't take that much. It doesn't take that much skill. It's like Zoom and podcasting and YouTube or whatever. It's it's not it doesn't take a genius yeah. at this point.
1: Yeah, there's a learning curve, but you learn it. There's nobody listening to this that cannot learn how to do all those things, Correct. and I know that because I learned. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and they figured out how to get their how to get their. Uh, AirPods in their ears and get them connected to their iPhones, obviously. So <laughs>
1: Exactly. It might take you a little longer the first time you do it, but you'll get it.
0: Sure. Yeah. yeah well, okay. and,
1: and I think, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but the Canada to Barcelona one, the thing that's important too is that it reflect the value of your time in your business model. So if you love travel, like I have a client who said, absolutely no more speaking for free. And then he got an invitation to India and he said, yes. I said, like, what is this? Did we not have a strategy that said, you know, no more speaking for free? He's like, I really want to go to India. And so, you (laughs) know, I mean, that's a decision, you know, you can make. And so you just have to decide. Sometimes it's on a case by case basis that if somebody said, do you want to travel to, I don't know, Saskatchewan in January, I'd probably say no. But if you said uh, Barcelona any time of year, I'd probably say yes. So it just depends on what you want to do, right? What you like to do, whether you want to travel or not, what the destination is, what the timing is, but also how does this work for your business? And if you travel a lot where you're not compensated, then you have to have really big ticket projects or uh, consulting relationships, or you're going to go broke fast.
0: I think what we're saying is there's not one way or approach to building confidence in this fit, like the potential fit between the buyer and seller. There's a million ways to do it. And it's probably smart to just pick one that you're most comfortable with and and run with it and set your mind to attracting the kinds of clients who are gonna respond, you know, that are like-minded and are gonna respond to that medium, whether it's the phone or in person, or you know whatever whatever the different options are that you want
1: but I, but I think it's also that we we should remember that that's what we are selling in most cases maybe not everybody that's listening to this but a lot of us are selling confidence that's at the end of the day that's what your client and buyer is feeling when they buy you and so what might be really instructive is to understand you know what are the points that inspire confidence in your audience, in your ideal audience, and then do some of those things consistently, right? right? Right. Because they're different for different audiences.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Cool. Okay. We could probably leave it there. The horse is dead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I guess we did get a whole episode out of this thought.
0: Yes. Well, we took a detour to Barcelona, but that's okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And Saskatchewan in July, I'm there just for the record.
0: Yeah. No (laughs) offense, Saskatchewanians. (laughs) Well, that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark.
1: And I'm Rochelle Moulton.
0: And we hope you join us again next time for The Business of Authority.
1: Bye. Bye-bye.